Hey everybody, welcome to the 112th episode of the JDO Show. I'm your host, J. David Osborne, and today on the show I have Jordan Harper, who is here for his fourth appearance. We're going to talk about what happened with LA Confidential, we're going to talk about Twitter, and uh, we're going to talk about, oddly enough, American History X. Hope you enjoy this new episode of the JDO Show featuring Jordan Harper. He won an Edgar Award for his book, She Rides Shotgun. He's a really nice man. He lives in Los Angeles. His address is... No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, enjoy this 112th episode of the JDO Show featuring Jordan Harper. Okay, bye. Okay. I was hearing a slight echo, but it's gone now. All right, we, we may continue. Okay. All right, All right. so uh, thank, this is your fourth appearance on the JDO show. Uh, I think that makes you the most, I don't know if any other guest has been on even three times, so welcome so back. I'm the reigning champion. Yes, yes. I like that. I like that. Yeah, we've been kind of following your, your saga, though. I feel like if we go back to the very first time you were on the show, maybe the second, it was when you had just started the whole LA Confidential journey. Yeah. I think I think it was the the second time. I know there was one time where I was literally locked in a hotel room. I believe working on the script, or maybe no. I think that was I was working on the script for something. I was doing the She Ride Shotgun feature script, but had just sold L.A. Confidential. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And so now the journey comes full circle. Did you want to talk about how everything uh, kind of ended? <laughs> Sure. Well, I mean, obviously, since the last time we talked, I got to make the pilot for L.A. Confidential, which was great. It got um, I, again, I don't remember where we were last time, but, you know, it was on uh, CBS agreed to uh, pay for the pilot and, and try and make it a TV show. And uh, I got to work with this fantastic director named Michael Denner, who was like the justified pilot director and, um, you know, runs uh, the direction on Sneaky Pete. And like, he's a really great guy. And um and we cast, we, man, the cast was so good. And uh, we had Walton Goggins and a whole lot of other really cool people and um, and made something that I think would have worked really well. Um, and it was a, as as dark as you could get on CBS. It was it was pretty edgy. And the entire time we were making it, I, I my, my mantra was, um, it's really weird that CBS chose to do this. It's, it's outside their comfort zone. So let's give them something outside their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And let's always make the, the choice that we think will make this more interesting, not the choice that we think will make it correct for, um, you know, CBS. I mean, obviously we obeyed like the strictures of, you know, um, of network television and, and we took notes and things like that. We weren't assholes. Um, and they approved of everything we did, you know, and at the end of the day, we made a pilot that everybody's really proud of and doesn't, you know, isn't going to be on CBS and isn't going to be anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, it, it was a really long, long journey. Uh, after CBS passed, there was an attempt to sell it other places that went on for like six weeks. Um, and then finally just uh, sputtered out basically the day that we lost um, the actor contracts were up. You know, you get a hold on to actors for a certain amount of time after you do a pilot. Um, and, um, you know, it was, it was heartbreaking, but by the end of that six weeks after CBS had passed and they, they loved it, you know, they were very clear that they thought we did a good job. It just wasn't, you know, it was a shot in the dark. And at the end of the day, in my opinion, this is me talking, not CBS. In my opinion, CBS is like the most successful network on television. Um, 
and they're they are that by not taking shots mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and i think it's great that they even let us shoot the pilot you know my you know the they spent millions and millions of dollars on it and um and so i can't be mad about that like you know um yeah. they they finance a very very expensive demo reel for me um i can take around town now and show to people um but um you know that anytime i i say this like i've done this a million times but i think i've had other showrunners tell me that this is not weird but there's also a deep profound sense of relief that i'm not gonna mm. spend six years you know um uh doing la confidential and even doing this much of it has kind of killed the novel for me. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. I, I mean, you know, my dog's named Delroy. Like, I, I, I really, really love the books of James mm-hmm. Delroy. Um, and I, I, you know, you dig so deep and you you go so far into them, and it, it's like doing an autopsy on something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and once you've seen, like, you know, somebody's guts, uh, you don't feel the same way about them anymore. Sure. Yeah, I, had a, I actually have kind of a weird question about what you were gonna. What were you gonna do with all the end bombs? Um, you know, that's a really good question. You mean like, like the fact that like basically the last fifty pages of that book are are, are resolutions that pile up on top of each other? Uh, oh no no no. I I mean I mean that's a good question too. But I I was just want like the N word. You know, like oh, end bomb. Yeah. I misheard you. Um. You know, it was important to me that, like, obviously we can't use, that's not a word that we're going to get on uh, TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think we would handle it a lot like the movie handled it, which is, in the book, the main characters are explicitly racist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are rules even to transgressiveness most of the time. And they are different rules for TV than they are for books. They're different rules 30 years ago than they are for today. And you can have people be conflicted and complicated. And you cannot make a six-year-long TV show about the emotional conflicts of out-and-out fucking, like, inward-using racists today. right, exactly. So you would just be, yeah, I, just, I guess that makes a lot of sense. But the accidental question that I didn't really ask, but that you heard, <laughs> is far more interesting. So yeah, what would you have done with an ending like that? Um, well, the the plot, the plan was basically to like take all the like. There's like a like a dozen different mysteries that get solved in L.A. Confidential. You know, there's the Frankenstein killer. There's obviously the Night Owl. There is. Um, the guy who's beating women to death with a with fistful of rings. Um, there's the missing heroine. There's Fleur de Lis, as much as that has a mystery to it. Um, you know, there's who who's trying to take over the mob, and the answer to most of those, is some way or another, Dudley Smith. Uh, but the idea was basically like season one, we were going to do the Frankenstein killer, and also do the stolen heroine, uh, which is what's going to kick off. Uh, the rest of the plot. So we were going to solve those two mysteries season one um, and, and, you know, do the reveal of like, um, you know, that um, Exley's father helped cover up this terrible crime in the past um, and disillusion him obviously way earlier than he gets disillusioned in the book. 
and then you just realize it's all going to spin out of control. I wanted to do the Night Owl Massacre as the opening of season two. Um, and then after that, I'm not, you know, I had a very rough plan of how to do five seasons of LA Confidential. Um, but when I think about how different it was going to wind up being from the book and how little use the book would be after like season two, um, that's when I start to feel a great sense of relief. For not, I mean, it would have been fun to figure out. We would have figured it out. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm kind of glad to like, whoo, don't have to do that anymore. So now you're just you're just pretty much focused on novel writing now. Well, you know, I'm I, I'm taking I haven't been in a writer's room for like two and a half, three years, ever since I left Gotham. And um, I've agreed my, one of my very best friends out here, Rebecca Cutter, uh, has a show that she just got greenlit called P-Town, at least that's the working title, uh, about the uh, opiate problem in Cape Cod and uh, like a a murder mystery tied to that. Uh, And I've agreed to go on to that as a consulting producer for like the next 10 weeks. Okay, cool. Yeah, you know, I mean... It was my idea to come on as a consulting producer, which basically means I'm going to have a little less responsibilities than I would normally have. Um, and that's so, yeah, I can keep working on on the book um, and, you know, kind of take meetings about whatever's next for me in television. Because, um, you know, uh, it, not just television, but also films. And uh, like we were talking right before we started recording about, you know, I, I said something on Twitter the other day that was like when I hear about um, really successful novelists now coming into television, I think about all the like really cool cowboys who ended up joining uh, Buffalo Bill's uh, Wild West Circus. <laughs> um, yeah, for the, me, I like you know I I can't if if you are successful in a field where you have complete creative control, right. Why you would come over here is totally beyond me. Um, and I think I feel about I feel about television the way Hunter S. Thompson felt about journalism. Um, like he acts, you know, Hunter S. Thompson always felt like he was a failed novelist who just got by on being uh, a journalist because that's what was paying him money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't say I, I don't consider myself a failed novelist, but like um, I, I, there's a lot of fun things I like, like I'm looking forward to going in a writer's room with my friend Cutter and solving problems. That part is really fun. And like, again, like we were talking a little bit before we started recording, it's not something that like fiction writers get a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like the camaraderie, but like, um, but the, uh, the creative control aspect is just like, it's beyond me why you'd want to give so much creative control up. And um, it's why several Famous novelists turned showrunners are also famous assholes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking. I mean, I'm thinking of one in particular, but yeah. Sure, sure. Um, well, no, they're actually the reason they're assholes is because they're assholes. Um, mm-hmm. But it's really, I again, like uh, you know, God bless them for coming over. But like, it's just like you have the dream. I don't understand what, why you would. I, again, it's like it's like turning yourself in, and, and, and I'm not going to be a gunslinger no more. I'm joining the circus. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I think I think that TV has just held. I mean, all of us since we were born, we have been staring at television. You know, there's something sure. uh, godlike about it, and I think people just it's the it's the Hollywood uh, it's the pull, man. People just want to be a part of that cycle, at least until they. Uh, 
realize what exactly it is and then they can you know make that choice down the road if that's something that they genuinely want to be a part of but i think people just get excited they're like oh a tv show it just it feels sexy in a way that writing novels doesn't yeah i don't know i this is something i've been thinking about a lot recently it's like we all and when i say we all i mean me but like i used to love movies so much right and and then i kind of put movies aside for a few years and I'm ready to go back to movies. I'm just, I'm talking both as a viewer and as, as a writer. Um, movies are great. Tell yeah. a story in an hour and a half. Um, get in, get out. Um, the, 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 the subject matter can be so interesting. You're not tied down by, is this a story that I need to tell over five years and, you know, 50 to 100 hours? Um and also there's no such thing as independent television mm-hmm. and this is something i said a lot i said you know um walton goggins is i i, I i'm so like you know i the shield's my favorite tv show i geek out so hard that uh that i got to work with him um and he was really heartbroken at, at the end of this process because he really wanted to play jack vincennes he really liked doing it and i told him like what i find really heartbreaking about television is that i can't say to walt like fuck it like i'll grab an iphone you know let's we'll we'll raise some money and we're gonna just do this on our own yeah um a because it's a property that we don't own the rights to but b because that doesn't happen in television right um and like it's also you know like i really love like jeremy Sollier. um i've been meaning to we talked about like the guy who played bud white for la confidential uh did we? I don't remember. And he's Mark Weber, who was in a green room. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, um, really great guy. Um, and you know, he played the kind of good Nazi skinhead. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I remember. Um, he was our Bud White. He was really good. That's awesome. Uh, That's a great choice, actually. Yeah, it, it, we, it, that was a fucking tough role to 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 cast. It was the one. That and Lynn Bracken were the two like really difficult ones, and the and the reason I think both of them were so hard was you needed somebody who was essentially movie stars, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but also like had to be able to act. And I didn't realize that that dude was was like a big guy. He seems kind of like smaller, and I've I always just picture Bud White as like a huge Hulk dude. You no, and it was you're right. He was um, he was a he was. Not he's not a big guy. He's he's five eight, I think. Mm-hmm. Which I I'm five eight, and I think we we're about the same height. Um, you know, but he did it. It was a different take on it. It wasn't the Bud White that is just like an obvious hulking presence. It was more like it was. He's a much bigger guy than Joe Pesci, so I don't want to say it was a Joe Pesci performance because that's not quite right. But like, you watch Goodfellas or you watch uh, Casino and you forget that Joe Pesci is literally 5'4". Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so he got it more, it was more just like, here's a guy who is so fucked up and so full of rage that he's going to kick your ass, you know? Right, right. Um, no, but and- I, to kind of go back to what you're talking about with TV, because I thought that was a really, really super interesting thread. Because, dude, I'm, I'm exactly the same now. I put movies away for a while. Uh and then suddenly I'm watching these TV shows on Netflix and I'm getting 
two or three episodes in and I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, is, is, are there yeah. eight more of these? Like, yeah. fuck. And it, it, I think it was most noticeable to me on the uh, first season of Bloodline, which I oh, thought yeah, was... I never watched that, but... It's pretty incredible. It was really, really good. Worth it for uh, Ben Mendelsohn's performance pretty much alone because he's just, he's like incredible to watch. But yeah, I mean, you get to a point about, I think it was 10 episodes long, but you get to episode seven and you're like, I, I get it. You know, I know where this is going. Are we going to go round and round? and then you, they start introducing little subplots here and there to just you can tell to just pad out the time, and yeah, I and I also I really do like the uh, uh, the Jeremy Sonier type stuff and uh, who's that guy who just did um, the Florida Project? That guy was oh, too. God, that movie was fantastic. It was so good. Yeah. I uh, I can't think of his name right now, but. Um... No, that's, a, um, you know, I'm really starting to look at, like, that's another thing I want to do is, like, there's this, like, realm of, like, it sounds like a lot of money, but for films it's not. Like, million to two million dollar films. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I think Green Room was, like, five, four or five million. Okay. Um, so, you see, like, like th- that wasn't a big budget movie, but, like, um, and that's, if you're going to make a crime movie today, that's what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and make it an hour and a half long. I, uh, I the other way I've been I've been buying Blu-rays, which um, I think is like I, I think it's just nice to have physical media. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, like Blu-rays are like I don't buy vinyl, but I get why people do, and that's why I buy Blu-rays. Yeah, um, yeah. No, that's so interesting because I I can feel that kind of shift in books as well. Which is why I was kind of, you know, I'm always playing around with ideas of how to monetize my writing. Yeah. Um, and the way that I kind of figured it out, I was going to do a Patreon, but Patreons never really seemed to work. They work for podcasts, I think. And uh, they also work for people who draw, um, you know, like deviant art, anime yeah. porn type stuff. Sure. But they don't work for writers. And I've seen writers try to serialize stuff on there. Um, Etc. 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 But what I realized is uh, having books on my own personal website that I kind of write in has really yeah. kind of taken off. And if you make it kind of like explicit to the people who are buying it that like this is the way that I get the most money, mm-hmm. it's kind of this. It's like a Patreon without the pressure. You know, it's like you come out, you release things, and you release them at kind of a premium. But you're sort of just like letting people know that their dollar is going further. And that means that I don't have to give out any kind of special rewards, which would probably stress me out and completely, you know, tank whatever project I tried to do. But Uh it's also just like I think people just are moving back towards wanting physical things again, like short physical, you know, things that they can hold. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction in the ways that things come to us now, mm-hmm. um, in, in streaming, I, I canceled my Amazon prime account. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was thinking about this too, actually. Um, and I, I'm saying this on a podcast, this might be stupid, but I think I'm just going to start pirating Microsoft word because I realized that I've been paying for a, a subscription, like $7 a month for this thing. And mm-hmm. I saw this tweet recently. Who's like, it was like, I really love that we gave up owning physical things in order to just pay for the right to stream it in perpetuity, like forever. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. It's so fucking stupid. I'm like, I, 
if I have Microsoft Word for like three years, I'm almost paying like $250 for this fucking program. And that's ridiculous, you know? That is, yes, it is. So anyway, so I'm just going to pirate that shit. Good for you. <laughs> but like, I feel like, I mean, not to just be an old fart, but there really is the... It's not just there is a pleasure in like buying physical things, holding them, having them, even going to shop for them. Yeah. Um, or even going to rent them, like even renting movies. I used to love spending an hour in a, in a video store. Oh, me too. Um, but I also, I maintain really strongly that you buy different and better things um, when you're not just streaming them, not just being fed something from your Netflix queue. Um, you know, because the world has become so, um, you know, all these algorithms, all they do, uh, Megan and I were talking about this last night, they just hide things from you. Mm -hmm. So they say, oh, you won't like that, so we're not going to show that to you. Um, and the whole point is like, so now if I want a book on Napoleon, I type in Napoleon and Amazon, I probably buy the top thing um, on the list, and then it comes to my house and it's 800 pages, and I go, wait, I don't want to read 800 pages about Napoleon. Right. Um, and then I don't read the book, and then I give it away. Um, or I do read it, but whatever. But I, but you know, if you go to Barnes and Noble, or even better, like you know, it, LA doesn't have a lot of super great independent bookstores. Stories. But man, I, Stories. Stories. Or like, I mean, I was in Portland, you know, two weeks ago, and like, goddamn, Powell's is a great bookstore, isn't it? Though. Oh my god. Um, and you go there, and maybe you go there to buy a book on Napoleon, and maybe you buy a book on Napoleon. But like, maybe you also, you know, um, buy a book about, you know, Nikki Sticks or like, right. um, how how to grow succulent. I don't give a shit. How, like, how the CIA invented Atlantis or some shit. You're like, wait, yeah. what? Um, and like, I think you just consume better things that way. And I, I don't know. Like, I don't, again, I don't want to be, like, too old-fashioned. I don't want to be too, like, pretentious. But I don't know when I personally just let the internet just completely conquer me. Yeah. Um, Twitter is awful. Mm -hmm. It's awful. Um, my brother sent me a tweet yesterday that was, like, you know, one of those tweets. And, and, of course, it's funny that it's a tweet. But, like, it was, like, you know, watches you know, it has the parentheses where it's like watches a person every single day lose their job thanks to Twitter. And then like the one thing is I must absolutely not quit using this website. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. That's all, Cause I'll be honest, like James Gunn is like somebody who I've looked up to for a really long time. Oh, can, uh, I, can I, I'm just going to go grab a cop, my coffee real fast. I've been yeah, yeah, it yeah. cool. I'll be right back. Two seconds. What David doesn't know is we've replaced his coffee with cool, crisp Folgers crystals. All right. Do, 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 do. Plugging in my headphones. All right, I'm back. Let's go. All right. Um, oh, what I was, I was saying, um, yeah, no, James Gunn is like a, like a really important person to me. Like I, I've looked up to him for a really long time. Uh, I was such a trauma kid mm -hmm. growing up. And and so, you know, he wrote Tromeo and Juliet, which was a movie I, I really love and, and will still maintain as the one trauma film that's like worth watching. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, there are other funny ones. Class of Newcomb High is funny. There's 
good stuff in, in other movies, but, um, you know, Tromeo and Juliet is actually really interesting in some ways. And, uh, so I, uh, you know, I followed his career when he directed Slither. I, I interviewed him, uh, cause he's a St. Louis guy. I interviewed him for the Riverfront Times, uh, when Slither came out. Uh, my editor changed something that made him look bad, and he very nicely contacted me and asked for a correction, which I, I totally gave him. Felt like a goon, um, you know. And, and I loved his version of his script for um, what was it? Uh, not Night of the Living Dead, but Return of the Dead or whatever it is. Um, and, and so, like, I, I, you know, and I like the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie. I like James Gunn, and I also I like him in a way that it's weird to now be confronted with the idea that like tweets that he made that okay so they're offensive but like they're they're offensive in a vacuum and but what i mean is he didn't like harass little kids he didn't harass victims of pedophilia he made jokes in a vacuum which uh, you know we can go back and forth on on just how bad that is my opinion is it's not that bad yeah um, and it can't be that bad or most you know, people in Hollywood need to be fired. Not most, but like every comedian I know. Sure. Um, you know that like, and again, I don't know why if you fire somebody for making obvious jokes, obvious jokes um, about, you know, pedophilia or, or, or in a vacuum rape, not making fun of a, a specific rape victim. Look, I'm not saying that stuff's in good taste. You know, um, I take it. I would take it a little bit further than you, and I. I just. I really don't believe that there should be limits placed on things that people joke about. I really don't. If it's in a comedic format, which in a lot of ways Twitter is, and come on, I mean, we can just tell when someone's joking. I think we just need a little bit more good faith. You know what I mean? A little bit less stringent rules. Like these are the list of words that you cannot say. These are the list of topics that you cannot make fun of or talk about. Like, what kind of world are we creating here? It's like a world of tattletales and scolds. I think that what a lot of folks don't realize is that people who praise someone getting fired for saying fucked up shit, they're just permit patties on the on the left. You know yeah. what I mean? They're they're calling the cops, dude. Like, they're, this this is not this cannot stand. There is a list of rules that you must follow. Whether it's, you know, you have to have a permit to sell lemonade on a sidewalk, or you are absolutely not allowed to make light of rape, pedophilia, child molestation, whatever. And then you call the authorities about it, and you get somebody in trouble. It's the same DNA. Well, and I'll say, I, I, I do agree with you. And, you know, I was at, like, a, a, a really good friend of mine is Doug Stanhope's manager. So I was at Doug's show last week, and, like, you know, he... He's one of those comedians who has made being super offensive an art form. Yeah. Um, I think he's one and, of the best comics, actually, of all time, personally. Yeah. No, he he is fantastic. And his DNA is, like, very much of George Carlin, who is, you know... Look, I don't like it on Twitter when somebody brings up Carlin in this in this arena. Because there'll always be... Somebody will say rape jokes are never funny, and somebody else will be like, well, George Carlin proved they were. But, like that's not going to convince anybody like that person who just said that is not going to think George Carlin's routine on that is funny. And look, there are times and places, but I, you know, I, I like Gabino a lot. Um, he tweeted today and, and I, I'm not, I'll, I'll tell him we're talking about this. So I'm not like I'm sniping at him on a different platform, but he said, if you re laugh at rape jokes, you're an asshole period. Okay. Uh, 
And I would just say in response to that, um, I, I guess that makes me an asshole. Um, right. right. Same here. Think, no, same here. I'm with you, man. I'm with you on this. You know, you think this is scary. I got to walk out of this forest alone. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, you know, that's a, that's a punchline to a joke about killing a kid right. uh, that I have laughed at. I can't act like I haven't laughed at it. And I could tell you, well, I've grown since then because I don't know if I heard a new version of that joke if I would laugh. Um, but I, sorry. Well, I, I, mean, I mean, they came for Anthony Jeselnik recently, the same people who came for James Gunn. And yeah. Jeselnik has a tweet recently where it's a quote tweet and the article is something to the effect of man like rapes and murders 16-year-old boy and then shoots himself. And Jezelnik's quote tweet is like, if you're ever thinking about suicide, please call the National Suicide Hotline at, you know. That shit is funny, you know? It's it's dark, but yeah. again, you know, if that makes us assholes, then I suppose guilty as charged. But you were you were talking about uh Stanhope, Doug Stanhope's manager. Oh, oh, it's well, you know, and and, and not to I don't want to blow his routine too much because it's especially taping, but he kind of talks about how hard it is how nobody can get him fired, essentially. Yeah. And not just because like he doesn't have a job, but also, and this is something that he doesn't talk about that I, I actually want to tell my friend Brian about um, when we go see Sicario 2 tonight. Um, oh, boy. Yeah, I know, but whatever. Anyway, um, you can't get somebody for something if they just flat out openly admit it. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that it's that uh, Hunter S. Thompson talked about back when he hung out with the Clinton campaign in the 90s. And people would be like, how is it OK for you, like this admitted drug addict, to like pal around with like James Carville and, and Clinton's whole like team? And, and, and Hunter S. Thompson said, it's because I'm an admitted addict. Right. Um, like, I admit it. I take drugs. It's what I do. Like, so what's the news story? Yeah. You know? Um, what's the news story in, in, in Anthony Jeselnik telling rape jokes? There isn't one. No. No? Um, and, look, again, I think that isn't an excuse for, like, people saying whatever they want whenever they want to say it. It's not saying that nobody can ever have their feelings hurt or that if somebody has their feelings hurt, you should just dismiss them. I don't believe that at all. And I think there are times and places, and, you know, it's not it's not simple. And... I, Twitter makes us want to think everything's simple. Yep. Um, and, and it makes it. You're right. It's this. It's this never-ending cavalcade of um, uh, of of tattletales and cops and and judging, and and even the slippery slope argument is can be simplistic. Where you want well, if you come for them for this, what happens? If they come for you for that. Um, like everything needs to be parsed out. And we need to talk about it. But like. This one in particular, and, and you know, and then uh, this James Gunn one, it really did get to me because I, I don't understand why a tweet is different than a movie. I really don't. Why is a tweet different than a movie? Right. Yeah, exactly. And because so this, and it, because it is turned into an art form by a lot of people. And that's how I think, I think that something's going on that we don't exactly have words for. All I can really describe it as is a feeling, you know? And I feel like when a tweet is put out there into the world, I think that everybody deep down, maybe not everybody, but just go with me. Everybody Mm -hmm. deep down 
knows what that is. It knows that it's in that weird space where it's kind of not real, but it's kind of real. And then I think you have to make a choice. I think that I think people choose to let things slide or get offended by them. I don't think there's anything that I've ever seen that I haven't had to, in a way, kind of talk myself into being upset about. Mm-hmm. The only thing that really upsets me on Twitter is stuff that directly affects me. If somebody <laughs> is mean to me, or people do that thing where they, uh, like, you make a joke, and then they try to, like, riff with you in the comments, but they don't give you a fave first. Shit yeah. like that drives... Those are the things, if I'm being honest, those are the things that genuinely offend me. Is stuff that directly, but stuff that doesn't, I have to like, it goes into like the realm of philosophy where I have to decide what it is that I think is right to care about. And then I can get myself really worked up, you know, but it's not that instant visceral thing. Well, no, now that I think about it and I'm rambling a bit, but now that I think about it, I do get viscerally mad when I see stuff about rich people. But that goes back to me being poor. You know, if I wasn't poor, maybe I wouldn't give a shit. But that's, those are just yeah. a list of thoughts rather than a point. No, I, I, you know, again, I think the Twitter argument back to that is that the ability to not be affected by things that, obviously there's there's white male, straight white male privilege yeah, of, of like course. being able to walk through. And, and, and that can be true and you can be aware of that and still have it be true. Yeah. Um, I Yeah, when I see people defending Elon Musk or the blood boils the blood boils um <laughs> yeah you know yeah. um the the actual boots on the ground nazis like the i don't know if you saw this it's been a busy week in atwater village which is where i live um oh, yeah. because uh last week the proud boys showed up uh and we're at a bar about i don't know half a mile from here the griffin correct the Griffin, yeah, and I didn't find about, out about it until after it was done, or I would have gone down because I don't, you know, I, I, I'm not cool with that. Like, yeah. I, um, but again, you know, I don't. I have a particular deep dislike for Nazis because I grew up in a town where there were a lot of skinhead Nazis, and you know, my older brother ran the punk club, and they put him in the hospital at one point. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. like. It's very personal to me in a way that um, some of this other stuff isn't. That I do know what happens if you let a bunch of Nazis into a bar. Like, it's not good. It's not good. And like, and um, and also they just really shouldn't be alive. If that make if that's just that's probably as blunt as I could put it. You yeah. know, if if you're if you're past a point of like being able to be reformed. I mean, American History X fucked so many people up. You know, it's like, oh, if a Nazi just, like, talks to black people, then, you know, maybe he'll turn it all around. And it's like, no, no, they're, they're most of them are just, they're deeply, deeply entrenched within this ideology. And at a certain point, you just, you got to put the dog with rabies down, yeah. in, my, in my humble opinion. Well, that is, you know what, the thing about American History X is it is, in a lot of ways, a super pernicious movie. Um you know, it, his, his transformation makes no sense. So he talks to a black guy, um, and then he gets mad at the Aryan Brotherhood for dealing drugs with black guys. Yeah. So he's being more racially pure than they are. And then they rape him, and then all of a sudden he gives up white supremacy. Yeah. No, that's, that's a, actually, it's such like a carceral 
narrative actually it's like you can you can rape the bad out of people essentially sure. um <laughs> but there also there's that old thing that i think it was uh, Truffaut who said you can't make an anti-war film because war is exciting oh interesting uh, uh and, and that you know it was an experience and i want to get back to american history x but i'll share this when we did focus group testing for la confidential um there's a scene in the pilot um that is that was my own invention where dudley smith is interrogating a guy at the victory motel and, and you know sticks a knife in, in the artery in his leg um, and says, you're going to tell me what I need to know because this knife is plugging up the artery. And the moment I pull the knife out, you're going to bleed to death. And it's up to you whether or not I pull it out here or in a hospital, right? Uh, and he's very explicitly wants to know where the missing heroin is so he can steal it for himself, right? Mm-hmm. And when the guy tells him everything he knows, Dudley Smith goes ahead and pulls the knife out anyway, and the guy dies. Mm-hmm. And we had people in the focus groups say i like dudley smith he's like a, he's a no-nonsense cop oh jesus christ and it made me realize it's the same thing with the shield um which is a show about a, a sociopath yeah um that there's nothing you can show a cop doing on screen that somebody won't approve of mm-hmm. um and in the same vein you can make a movie about how white power is wrong but if you have a scene where your hero, even though he's going to be reformed later, your hero curb stomps a guy to death mm-hmm. and then stands. And I don't know if you remember the shot, but like there's this shot of, of the actor. I forget the actor's name um, from American History X where he oh. looks. Edward Norton? Edward Norton. Edward Norton looks super cool. He's like muscled up. That's the thing. He looks sexy, dude. He looks sexy. And like he and uh, Feruza Balk is sexy in it. Yeah. And. Um, and you know, there's a shot where he's standing with his arms outstretched and then he puts his hands behind his head. And so his muscles flex just so, mm-hmm. and, and then the cop puts his hand over the swastika as he's arresting him. And I think that's supposed to make you go, Oh, the, you know, the Nazis falling. He looks fucking cool in that shot. Yep. And when, so when you do that, you're like totally like saying Nazis are good. Oh, hold on just a second. Sure the line but you were talking about uh how awesome american history x was and how nazis are cool and i just i want to i want to follow that up with it's kind of a problem um i did a tweet about a week ago because somehow this had like totally flown over my head but i was on instagram and i was looking at accounts of like people cosplaying as vikings uh-huh. And I was like looking at him and I'm like, this is actually sort of badass. It's like ripped dudes with like cool hair and they like have Braveheart paint on their face and animal skins and all these runic tattoos, you know, I'm like, this is cool. And then as I go down that rabbit hole, I'm like, oh my God, these are all white supremacists. And it's yeah. like white supremacists, you know, co-opted this kind of Norse imagery and people on Twitter were like, yeah, idiot, that's been a thing for a long time. But that shit is so fucking cool, man. Vikings are cool, you know? Vikings are fucking cool. Um, skinheads are so cool that even after skinheads were totally taken over by the alt-right, people who weren't, or not just alt-right, but right-wing. I mean, I used to live with a couple of, they call themselves trad skins. Yeah. And they were not racist dudes. Like, I knew them. Um, you know, they used to go out and get into punch-ups with the racists. And 
but they still had to, they still wanted the look because the look was cool. Listening to old, you know, first wave ska records is cool. Mm -hmm. Like drinking a bunch of beer and, and, and getting into punch ups is cool. Um, I would only use the phrase punch ups when talking about skinheads. I would never use it if it was some other group of people fighting. Um, But like, it just makes me think of people who like like hold their their fists up like with the back of their knuckles facing the person, you know that, and like, you know, they do that thing where they're like moving their hand. I don't know. Anyway, that cartoon <laughs> kind of thing. But yeah, oh yeah, like do 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 do. But no, Vikings are cool. No, it's like that whole Odinist thing, which is like they took the very cool Greek or not Greek myths. Somebody should do that. But um, Norse myths and made a whole bullshit religion about them just for white people. Yeah. You know? Well, that's not fair. Like, I, I should be able to. I want to be able to read about Thor, um, in a non-Marvel context, um, yeah. and not not be a racist. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like one of those things where anytime white people uh, kind of go back and and find our what would be, I guess, our actual culture. It's like the the white supremacists got there first, you know. And it's like, sure. oh man, I was like reading about like what could be. For once, I finally felt like I might have, like, my pasty bloodline might have a link to something cool. And it's like, <laughs> damn it, the, the racists are there. So, yeah, it's tough. But it goes back to that thing where it's like, um, what, what a lot of people, like, don't understand is that a lot of this culture war, at a certain point, it's it's a battle between purity and aesthetics, right? Mm-hmm. And some people, people on both sides in equal measures depending on what the current battle today is either take the purity angle or they take the aesthetic angle Mm -hmm. and i think it's really just as simple as that you can see it on the left where if you know if we're gonna get somebody fucking fired we're taking the purity angle same as on the right and then if we're trying to like somehow excuse behavior we go aesthetic We, we talk about how it's art or how uh deep down we just kind of like that thing we think it's cool and we want to defend the fact that we think it's cool yeah it's no that's totally true and it is it's weird how the lines get drawn and you're right there's like i was saying the other day for everything that i like in the world there's exactly what you're saying a white supremacist version of it Mm -hmm. be that black metal or any kind of heavy metal, any kind of horror, science fiction, um, you know, like. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that is that I do think that horseshoe theory is real in a lot of ways, which mm-hmm. is the idea that you take the extreme right and the extreme left, and, and somehow they bend together in some certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that's actually, it's, it's really more about insider art versus outsider art. Hmm. Um, that you know, most of the art that appeals to me, because I grew up in, in, in like a very much an outcast in the Ozarks, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I've always been, that's the kind of art that appeals to me. And so that's going to be like how I like Vaporwave and so do like the, the like Kekistan guys. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, aesthetically, I have a lot in common uh, with the alt-right, to be honest. You know, I, sure. I've, I've been on, I'm a 4chan kid. You know, I, um, I was actually, you know, I talked to Rios about this a lot and we joke around, but it's really kind of not a joke wondering what I would have been like if I hadn't met her and been, cause you know, she's ultra 
ultra left, you know, and has mm-hmm. kind of, and has been infinitely patient with my like dumbass ramblings and just like not understanding. Like I go to her first when I have an opinion yeah. about something and I kind of like <laughs> ramble about it and she listens and she says, "Okay, well, you know, you're dumb cuz you're thinking about it this way." And I'm like, "Oh, right, right, right. Got it." But yeah, <laughs> but sometimes I mean, I think about if she didn't exist, I have this real fear that genuinely has kept me up at night that like I would have ended up like those dudes, you know? Yeah. And and the reason why is because the aesthetic of like transgression is incredibly appealing to me. And when uh, uh normally when a right-wing uh, or when a when a uh, sorry, a liberal president is there. That's when like the left actually gets a little bit free and they start, you know, doing some real transgressive weird shit. But as soon as like a Republican gets in office, everybody feels like they have to take up arms and it becomes all about like battening down the hatches of purity and making sure that we say all the right things and that we're just we're not like them. So when that happens, I completely understand the aesthetic desire to go where the things that you think are cool are. You know, and frankly, to a lot of like white people who don't really have to worry about uh, being victims of racism, it's a lot easier to just overlook the racist element or even like lightly and like cosplay as a racist, because in exchange for that, you get all your toys that you like, all the things that you think are pretty. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. I, I grapple with this a lot in that I think on the surface and actually down several layers of personality, the difference between, there aren't any differences between a anarchist and a fascist who isn't in power, Hmm. you know? And it's really sometimes only down to that final level where you go, I want to be able to do whatever I want and I don't want you telling me what to do and I want to be free. And then you just get down to that last level where Oh, and I don't want to tell anybody else what to do. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like everybody else is a person just like me, and therefore I don't want to fuck with them. Whereas, like, it's funny because uh, not to, we're, we've talked about my novel off the air. Um, Let's I do think it, man. The, but the, the, the thing I'm wrestling with with this new novel I'm working on is the difference between freedom and power. Mm-hmm. And that you can be very powerful and not free at all which is what Donald Trump is. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also be free and have no power. And right now that would be somebody who's like somehow successfully homeless. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do spend a lot of time thinking about like, I go to Democratic Socialists of America meetings and nothing has made me more of an anarchist than Democratic Socialists of America meetings. Because... <laughs> The rank and file people all seem cool, but the people who are running things seem like the kind of people who want to run things. Yeah. And I don't fucking like people who want to run things. Oh, dude, you're, sp- you're speaking truth, dude. Keep it going. No, because, like, I just, you know, and I go there and I go, well, I agree with all the policies you want, but I don't want you in charge of shit because you like this. Yep. And, like, I just, and that's how I know that I'm not, like, it's, like, cool to be a communist right now. Um and I'm not one. I, I want there to be district. I want, I, I don't know. I don't want people in charge because it, it'll just turn out the way everybody turns out when they're in charge. They just, power is fucking toxic, you know? Mm-hmm. And 
Um, you know, you see it all the time in Hollywood. Did I enjoy being the showrunner of, of a pilot? I did. You know, um, I'll tell you when I when I know that I don't think anybody should have power is when I get upgraded to business class on an airline. Mm. And I see what it does to me. Yep. And I go, that person's not in group two. They're in group three. Why are they getting in line with group two people? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I go, well, <laughs> you know, and I so enjoy the sitting down, getting my seat. Yeah. You know, and then watching the Hoi Paloi come through. Yeah. Oh, I wish you were sitting up here, don't you? Plenty of room for my carry-on bag up here. <laughs> and it's just like it's just like that, you know? And I, it's just like, oh, God. Right, um, right. It's so bad. And um, and I just, I really, really think that, like, you know, somebody's got to steer a ship if there's a ship. Mm-hmm. But, like, anybody who wants to steer it shouldn't be the one who steers it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I just, I don't know. So, I yeah, I go to DSA meetings and get freaked out and don't like it. And then, of course, you know, the L.A. chapter had... Um, you know, some sexual harassment problems and um, stuff like that where you just go, yeah, they're just like, they're an organization and, 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 and that's bad at the end of the day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it always comes back to that, doesn't it? There's always like, it's always a dude who wants to get laid. There's a dude who wants to get laid at the heart of all this shit. And I think yeah. that that's why I get so cynical about... Um, the online world, you know, and Twitter. Yeah. Because everything feels so disingenuous to me. And it's the people... I have been doing this extremely weird thing that I'll, I'll cop to now, but I've been saving pictures, like Twitter pictures, of dudes who go on to tweet threads in which the OP is talking about an assault or... Mm. Uh, some sexual harassment that they have had to endure. So I've been mm-hmm. going through, reading the threads, and finding the guys who say something to the effect of, I'm sorry that happened to you, or uh, in some cases, very blatantly like, oh, I don't even get it. What's this world coming to? I would never do something like that. Mm-hmm. And I've been saving the pictures of them, right? Mm-hmm. And it's always uh, slightly overweight neckbeards with uh, glasses, Always, yeah. every single time. Every, I have a collection of these photos. And it just, to me, it feels like such um, guys are just being guided around by their, their dicks, you know? Again, it's, that, it's, it's a purity that's almost informed by aesthetics, right? Because it's like, if I can hitch my wagon to this particular thing, and it's not even saying that they don't necessarily believe it, but deep, dark, in, that, in those twisted little brains that we have, they're thinking there's pussy at the end of this rainbow and I'm going to mm-hmm. get it. And it's just gross. It grosses me out, dude. <laughs> no, you're right. It's so much of, of life is about somebody, yeah, wants to get laid and, and they create fucking power structures or they get involved in the power structures and, like, so much of Hollywood is built on that, obviously. Obviously, like, yeah. Um, you know, apparently wrestling teams are built on that, like, Mm-hmm. Um, I'm talking about this doctor that people have been outing recently who like to shower with the dudes yeah um, and, and then just the the protection of those people and the going along with it and like I don't know it, yeah it's it's fascinating on, on either side of the, the fence you're right people get oh my god 
yeah, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Do you are you okay? My DMs are open. Yeah. Um, or, you know, obviously the fucking assholes who, like, actually do the terrible things that... Right. Um, I just, you watch Spotlight, and I think Spotlight's a really good movie. It's the one really good movie that's won an Oscar recently, you know? I haven't um, seen it. It's, it's really... What I like about it is the reporters are sketched out just enough for you to get who they are a little bit as people, but it's just about a group of people solving a problem, mm-hmm. which is we are reporting on this case and it's very complicated. Mm-hmm. And and then they just report on it and that's kind of it. And there aren't too many speeches about how journalism is some sacred thing or, you know. Yeah. It's very matter of fact in a way that I really enjoy in movies. Um, but um, it really, you just, how much of the Catholic Church is just about fucking? Yeah. yeah no i mean it's it's like it it, i mean the catholic church basically is just it's a sex cult dude i mean it's it's like it's all about um you know restricting access to sex and and it's like this sadomasochistic kind of thing and then of course the the fucking young boys thing seems so deeply ingrained into it it's like it does just kind of feel like a pedophilic s&m cult in a way yeah I um yeah and you just want to know and maybe somebody's written about it. I'm sure somebody has I would love to read like about whatever meeting it was where some guy said hey guys you know what if what if we didn't fuck anymore yeah <laughs> and everybody else goes okay yeah you're right right you rule right like, right like how did that happen how did anybody come up with that and how did you get like a bunch of other people to go along with it like right um and i i literally that i i should just look it up because surely somebody has written well it's it comes from the fact that uh the catholic church in general i mean like way way back when they were first starting out like everybody thought they were real weirdos because they had this fetish about death right it's this weird death cult that like they they pretend to eat like to cannibalize bodies and stuff like that but they kind of um the more mystic sects of the um, of the cult, like the Gnostics and things like that, were ascetics, right? So no sex, yeah. no eating, and that's just a long like you go to like Sufism and all those old uh, sort of mystical traditions. They all have this like deny the body for the greater good, and I think so. I think that the, the Catholic Church was built out of that uh, because then you had the kind of like the Franciscans and uh, what was the other ones, the Dominicans, right? Who would, mm-hmm. that would live in solitude and never fuck and just like pray all day. So I mean, the church is just literally built out of that. You know, like I don't think it was ever like a, a decision that was made. It was kind of like if you're a monk, which then kind of sort of evolved into being priests. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just it's kind of built into the to the it's a it's not a bug, it's a feature. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, God, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I can't I can't imagine people who would like choose then the thing that the thing that fucks me up is like the people who would choose to do that they have a deep like masochistic personality like they have to they have to like kind of in a way love the fact that they're not allowed to do the thing that they really want to do deep well, down I, that or I mean I do think in maybe less so now than in the past there's also the idea that if you are gay 
and you know you're not supposed to be gay, um, that, you know, maybe you, like, there's, like, a self-loathing element to it also of, like, maybe it'll be okay if I, if I join the priesthood. Mm-hmm. And then you get into the priesthood, and, you know, we get really angry about, like, the, like, molesters, which is the correct attitude, but people don't talk about, like, there are plenty of priests who just fuck women. Yeah. On the down low. Sure. Um, and, you know, we don't talk about them. But I think once you get through the door, I think it's one of those things where you find out very quickly, like, oh, yeah, no, you can do that. You can deny yourself. But, like, you don't have to. Yeah, yeah. It would actually be interesting, like, if it, the percentage of priests that actually stick to that their entire life. And I would bet you it was probably around 0%. But it was kind of fun. Like I don't know why this reminded me of it, but um, you were talking about like if you're if you're gay or whatever. And I I saw this video yesterday that just cracked me up, and it was about the Trader Joe's uh, situation. Oh well, let's talk about that next. But go ahead. So this was like, and this is again, this is that kind of gallows humor that to me is just like I didn't know if I should like post something about it because it's like so dark. But it was on CNN, and uh, the guy was trying to ask. Or was interviewing one of the hostages and was like talking about like what does the the shooter look like right and the guy goes he's like a buff sexy black guy oh, with dreads funny, yeah. and i was i like died laughing that was just one of the funniest because i'm like that is so that might be that's like the chef the chef fingertip kiss uh-huh that's the one time where i like almost did that like in real life it's just beautiful that that's a work of art right there well, I do think, like, even in the while that was still going on, um, I saw that, and it was the one thing that about the situation that was genuinely, undeniably funny. Yeah, yeah. And, and you didn't have to make some terrible like Trader Joe's joke to 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 make the joke. Were people it doing was, that? Oh uh, well, you know, I saw it on Twitter. It's that thing where somebody finds somebody making an off-color joke and has to fucking alert the world okay. that this guy with five followers made a joke. Right. Um. But so, so yesterday, I left my house in Atwater Village. I drove to Amoeba Records, which I don't know if you've ever been to Amoeba. It's an awesome record store here in L.A. Um, and, and when I was about halfway there, I was on Sunset, uh, and traffic stopped while for a minute and a half, 17 cops passed me going the other way. Whoa. And obviously, this was the car chase. I just didn't notice the car in front of them because it was just a car. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so I I had a very, like, indie film view of this hostage situation yesterday. Mm-hmm. So I saw that. Um, very be- I saw it had a very beginning of a plague movie uh, view of it. Because then I went to uh, Amoeba, uh, bought a Blu-ray of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Thanks for asking. And uh, <laughs> came home. And um, on my way home, I kind of took some back roads just you know, wasn't really thinking about how I was getting home. And then all of a sudden I was like stuck in fucking awful traffic on this back road. And, um, people were like getting out of their cars and directing traffic, clearing this road out, this little side street, all of a sudden an ambulance came out of it. Um, and I was just like, what the fuck? And you could hear all the choppers overhead. And then, Basically, this back road was taking me to, I was trying to get to the intersection that if you watched the news at all yesterday and you saw the command center, yeah, that's where I was trying to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right as I got to the, inter- the turn that would have put me on that, there was a cop putting tape across the road, closing the road off. Yeah. 
Um, and so I had to get home through like, um, like I had to take these weird back roads to, I kind of got lost and then found my way home. And that's when I found out what was going on. But that was like a half mile from my house. Wow. Um, I mean, that is not to be the person who tries to make it meaningful, but like, that is like, that's my Trader Joe's. I go there like all the time. Um, and, and it was very weird to, to have something happen that close to your house. Apparently, also something, it's just so random. Yeah. And a woman died. I, I, I you know, they don't know if, if he shot her, if the cop shot her on accident. Hmm. Um, I don't know. It was, it was really, I have nothing profound to say about it at all other than it was just, it, it does get to you when it happens right next to your house. Like, you know, yeah, because it feels almost like there's this sort of like demonic entity or spirit, right? That moves yeah. through all of these shootings, and it feels like uh, like if you were to put um, a kind of physicality to it, it's this kind of like almost dune uh, sandworm thing that just like is moving around the country, and it's just like spreading violence and and this this plague of of gun violence right and so then it's almost like if you think about it in this in this sort of way it's like you this thing that is like a myth or a legend like you saw like the underbelly of this this worm like pass over your your house you know what i mean so it's like you're you're witnessing the mythical beast up close and personal and it's not just it's not words anymore it's not hypothetical it's not a screen that you're looking at it's like oh you can feel the that um disease of violence like close by like there's something was there something in the air because i i assume there was well i mean not to be trite but the literal thing in the air were like five cop helicopters sure you know like something is happening like i said like the first time because um because it was, uh, I just got a text from my brother saying that they're saying maybe it was the cops who killed that woman. Um, so I totally lost my train of thought there. Um, well, the cop, I mean, the there helicopters like, in the air, you know. Well, like I texted my brother, like, you know, I don't know what's going on, but be careful. Because, like, I literally, like, after the first four passed me, I was like, okay, I'm going to count this. And I got up to 17 cop cars. Mm. Um, and you go, well, that's like something is happening, you know. Right. Um but it really, it was that moment where I was stuck in traffic on this back street and then all of a sudden you realize these guys are like blocking traffic so an ambulance can get out of this little street and you're like, oh, like something is like happening. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is a weird like, I'm glad I got out of it and like I think I was probably, you know, 10, 15 minutes too late to have been like trapped in inside the, the cordon, the police, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you get like, Oh, it just, yeah, it is weird. It's, it's something in the air. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder and, what it is, man. I wonder what it is. It's, it feels uniquely American. And I think it's too simple to just say that it's because we have such a, such access to guns, you know, cause you would think that you'd think that other countries would have more just like violent spree killings regardless of whether the i mean obviously a gun makes it easier you know i'm not somehow i'm not one of those fucking goons who's like well if we got rid of guns we would just have knife attacks yeah but but what i'm saying is you would think in other countries there would be more but the the spree killing is so uniquely american 
and I want I just wonder what that's about. Sometimes I feel like we live in a in a very like soulless evil country. Like deep down, like America has this huge evil that might have always existed, but definitely sort of reared its head when when us white folks came over. Yeah. And it just it just feels like the whole thing is just diseased. And I don't know what to do because I I don't want to just abandon it, you know, for some other I've thought about it for a while, like moving to a different country. Sure. But uh but it it just does feel like it feels like something bigger. It feels like you can't even really you have to use biblical language to describe how uh rotten the country is. Yeah, I I agree. Well, here's a, it's what I was wondering. What was you know? You're right. Spree killing is is really American. But am I wrong? I know there have been serial killers in other countries, right? Of course, yeah. But am I wrong in thinking there were a lot more serial killers in America than no. in other countries? No, no. I think you're I think you're dead on. Yeah, and I'm even I'm thinking about it even in terms of like spree killers. There's that guy in what Sweden or Norway. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Who killed a bunch of kids, and he's actually getting out of jail soon. Um, but yes, yeah, serial killers. I, I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. Well, like, I, because I, I feel like when you hear about serial killers, like obviously there are others, there are serial killers in other countries, but I don't know if it's just my American, American like the fact that I'm American that makes me think that all the famous serial killers are American. But like. The one, that, there, the one that was they, based off of uh, the Wolf Creek guy in Australia. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I mean, your, your, your point is well taken. I mean, it's just like it, it doesn't compare. I mean, no other country that I can think of has a, has a Charles Manson, right? Right. Um, it, this made me pull up on the Internet, like the quote that we would all love to start our books with. But like I, I think nine million people have, which is the D.H. Lawrence quote. Uh, the American, the essential American soul is hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer. It has never yet melted. Oh, I love that. I've never heard that. You've never heard that. No, I feel like dude. every, I feel like like we all have one novel that we're allowed to um, start <laughs> our novel quote. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it's a, no, it's a great quote, and it, I mean, it's uh, again like film noir is a. French term to examine American art. Um, and there is obviously French noir and French crime writers, and there are crime writers from all over the world. Um, but I don't know, man. America seems very uniquely this. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I have a, I'm looking at my shelf. At the, I have my shelf of books I've never read and might never read. Um, a book called The Barbarous Years, which is about the colonization of America and just how fucking violent it was in some way that we never talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, it's one of those books. I have a bad habit of buying really dry historical books that I hate reading. <laughs> it's a great title, though. The Barbarous Years is a fucking. Yeah. I wish I came up with that. I just I I've re, I've come to come to grips and I'm totally okay with it now that I only like really entertainingly written history. Yeah. Um, and if you're just giving me dates and statistics and, and, and facts, then I can't read it. And I'm sorry, but like, you know, books for historians are different. But if you're writing a book that you want anybody who's not a historian to read, fucking put some art in it, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I feel like that those books exist really only 
uh, as research materials for actual storytellers to do something with. You know, if you wanted to, if you want to take a deep dive and write a novel or you know a historic like a readable historical account of something, you buy those books and you you do the hard work of you know parsing through all that lame bullshit to get to the heart of it. But but yeah, no, I mean. I think that's why, uh, you know, obviously, um, Americans have been so, like, the subject of so much fascination the world over, you know? Like, people are kind of obsessed, specifically with uh, New York, the Deep South, and Los Angeles. Maybe a little bit Las Vegas, too. We can throw Las Vegas in there. But I feel like those are the main sort of nexuses nexi i don't know nexuses yeah. of american um like just depravity and awfulness like there's like just deep deep psychic wounds in those areas of the country which is why i thought it was interesting you know that lynch took twin peaks to vegas you know yeah it felt right uh, yeah that's true that that does it's weird that that does make sense. That, that that is a world that you totally believe has Las Vegas in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, went on too long, but I've I've made my peace with it. Oh yeah, I forgot we we talked about that already. Yeah, we just we we disagreed about that. But um, but no, yeah, and I think that uh, obviously the American consumer is really really important to the world economy. I mean, that's pretty much what we what America based its entire foreign policy on after. World War Two, you know, we had like Bretton Woods and the the deal that was struck amongst the the victor countries uh, in World War Two was that the U.S. would um, kind of like control the world militarily, right? Mm-hmm. And the uh, the exchange that the other countries would get would be access to the American consumer, right? So most countries run on the um their access to american debt and the american consumer so i think that also leads to the to the fascination is that we're all of us are just little soulless chips that you know rich people trade back and forth and it's like that in this country to an extent that it isn't anywhere else so it's just it's violent and it's racist and it's built on like millions of dead bodies and we are also now completely soulless because we're the number one exporter of uh, distraction material that we can all kind of look at while they set about the business of, you know, completely destroying the world through global warming, et cetera. This is a real <laughs> upper of a podcast, dude. This is really Man, cool. well, I, I don't, you know, I think I'm not a primitivist, right? I'm not somebody who thinks that we all need to go back to nature because I really... And this is not, I don't think this is that far out anymore. I just kind of go, I, I like people because I'm a person. Mm-hmm. I, you cannot conjure up an argument for humanity that doesn't reference humanity. Yeah. Like, because you just can't, because we're fucking awful. I mean, the only other species that would be in favor of humanity are, are, are parasites um, or, or like, or, or dogs. Yeah. Um, you know, but like we're, I always think you can, you can tell horror does so much to, to explain the national mood. And I think it's really, did you watch the trailer for the new Godzilla movie? No, I didn't. It's worth watching. It looks like it might be a really good movie, but it's totally presents the argument explicitly, like in voiceover that we are a cancer We're we're a disease 
and the Godzilla and his like are um, are basically the body's version of a fever that fights an infection. Mm. And I think she's the villain, the voiceover person. But then all of the monsters are revealed in the trailer, and the music in the background is not horror movie. It's like reverent religious sounding music. Yeah. And it's completely 100% like the, like, oh, good. Like, the monsters are here to kill us all. Yeah. And there is so much ironic suicidal ideation on my Twitter feed. Yes. Tons. Um, tons. So to, much. To the point where I've, like, I've, I've sort of meekly tried to address it, as it were, on my own feed. And, I, yeah, I think that, like, the uh, depressive as, again, as an aesthetic... I think I feel like that's so um that's just dangerous and bad, you know? Like the so sad todays of the world. It's uh-huh. like it's interesting too because as a marketing gimmick it doesn't work. I no, it's well, I mean uh, we touched on this earlier but like um Twitter is awful. Yes. And that is the other brand of Twitter that I you see all the time is is Twitter is awful and I, specifically, it's really bad for me. I know that. Like, uh, like the problems I have with writing are partially caused by constantly subjecting myself, like I don't know, twelve times a day, to a chorus of critical voices, and they're not being critical of me most of the time. Although sometimes they are, at least in, in abstract. But like, this is bad. This art is bad. People who like this art is bad. This person's bad. Right. Um, this con- constant judging voice. Sometimes it's a funny judging voice, um, but a lot of times it's just a judging, awful voice, and it's just get mad about this. This is awful. The people who do this are bad, and you know, there's like four or five people on Twitter, like Priscilla Page. Do you know who Priscilla is? Oh, she's awesome. I love her Twitter feed so much because. She's just 99% of the time, and she gets political too, and, and, and that's fine, because 99% of the time, she's just about, I love this thing. Um, this thing's great. Hey, check out this great thing. Um, and, and that's so great and so rare. Mm-hmm. And, and it's also rare in that she does that and people respond very favorably to her. Um. And I just, I, I've been trying to come up with, I, I formulate a rule that I think would be really good, not just on Twitter, but just in life in general, which is if you're going to tell me something sucks, you have to, in the same paragraph, tell me something that's awesome. Yeah. And not just for like positivity for positivity's sake, but also just show me the cards you're playing with. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if that's a bad movie, tell me a movie in that genre that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, if this is a bad rock record, tell me a good rock rock record because, like, otherwise, you're just saying something sucks, and that is the, like the most boring thing you can say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That was no, my rant. No, and that's awesome. That's a hundred percent awesome. I I have heard somewhere that uh, it's a good idea. I think oh, Connor Habib said it. It's a good idea to write actually write out a kind of manifesto for yourself about what you want to get out of being on Twitter or being online mm-hmm. and just create rules for yourself. I've yet to do it, obviously. 
because my Twitter is all over the place. But I think that, I don't know, I feel a little inspired now to actually sit down and be like, what am I doing here? You know, am I, I sometimes I try to be funny. Sometimes I, I, I'm hateful. Sometimes I'm like a shining beam of positivity. It's extremely inconsistent because it's just my kind of raw, unfiltered feelings combined with the fact that I have a device in my hand that can let me transmit those feelings to whoever wants to look at them, you know? Yeah. But I do like the idea of, because it's not going anywhere. You know, I talked to you, I think, about this, about uh, how I'm kind of approaching uh, alcohol in particular, you know, just like with a clear sort of list of rules about like how I'm going to use that within my life because I don't think it's ever going to really go away. Mm -hmm. So maybe Twitter needs that too. It's like, realistically, I mean, I've taken, uh, I took a four month Facebook break. It was awesome. And it really, the four month break did disabuse me of really giving a shit about Facebook. Like I barely (laughs) even look at it now or post on it, but Twitter has taken its place a hundred percent. And I mean, I think that Twitter's a better platform than Facebook, uh, but it's equally unhealthy. So, yeah, I mean, like, just a just a set of rules, even if it's, like, rules for your phone. Like, at past, you know, 8 p.m., the phone goes in a drawer and it doesn't come back out, you know? Or you have, you if you're going into a, a tweet with a feeling of just intense rage, like, you have to save it to drafts and wait, like, a few hours before you post it, you know? But yeah. but just just an idea of like this thing isn't going away unless Twitter just implodes or something. It's not going away. I'm not going to stop using it. So how can I mitigate these effects? I think that's you know what I did last night, and it's a, to me. I hear what you're saying. It, it doesn't have to be there. Hmm. You know, like I was just thinking about how I've always noticed how I don't notice if I unfollow somebody. You know, Mm -hmm. because I find with most funny accounts, people who are really funny on Twitter, eventually they won't be funny to you anymore because everybody in the world only has a dozen jokes. Um, And so eventually you unfollow them and then you never go, hey, man, what's Rob Delaney up to? That's a good example. Yeah. I followed Delaney years ago and then I just stopped because, like you said, the joke started getting old. Yeah. And then it's like, yeah, who cares? Who cares? You don't miss him. You don't miss anybody you unfollow. You won't miss in a week. You won't be going, oh, what about them, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And you have to wonder if that doesn't extend to the whole platform. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, would it really be so bad to find out things when Megan finds them out as opposed to, like, 30 minutes earlier, you know? Right, Um, right. Oh, that's the thing. That's a lot of Rios and I's conversation. I'll be like, do you hear about this thing? And she'll be like, yep. And that's it, you know? (laughs) Well, that's the thing. It's like, I mean, this is like an old, this is a well-worn topic, but the internet went from an expansive medium to a narrowing medium. Mm -hmm. And now there's like the five things, like, look, five years ago even, when Twitter was around, but it was a little different, everybody in the world would not have been focused on the Atwater Village standoff um, yesterday. Mm -hmm. Uh, but now, nowadays, there's going to be five things um, that everybody essentially is going to get. You know, everybody's and uh, look, you've done it, I've done it. Your black sarcophagus riff. Yep. Um, again, that's just tying into how we all joke about wanting to die constantly. Because mm-hmm. I, I don't remember what yours was, but 
I saw at least nine versions of the hurry up and open it. Like, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm ready for the end. Um, I, I made more jokes, I think, about the uh, about the juice. I, well, my, mine was uh, clap hands, let people drink the juice or something like that. I can't remember. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the other part is, yeah, sure, drink the juice. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It looks kind of like Kool-Aid with shit in it. That's what it looks yeah. like to me. Uh, <laughs> um <laughs> My things, okay, my Twitter rules, which I started talking about, which I consider half measures, I took it off my phone. Okay. So I can look at it on my laptop, but I can't look at it on my phone, which cuts down the number of times I look at it by 75%. Yeah. Um, I, so I can't roll over in the morning um, and grab my phone and start looking at Twitter, which is no fucking way to start your day. That's hu- that's a huge step, and I've heard that so many places, and I've even tried that for myself before, and uh, I don't know, man. I just I fell back into it, but I li- I literally did that this morning. I thumbed open Twitter and saw what was going on. It's just um, bad. It is bad, but so what I what it makes a really good replacement for me is putting the Wikipedia app on your phone. And if you've just got to put something in your eyeballs, it doesn't have to be the thing that everybody else is putting in their eyeballs. Mm. <laughs> just open up Wikipedia and type in fucking anything, you know? Yeah. I, I ended up this morning reading about how um, the Egyptian pharaohs ended up adapting Alexander the Great as a god. Mm-hmm. And I read about the Alexander the Great death cult. That's cool. Uh, yeah, it was pretty interesting. Um, and, you know... There's like the, Wikipedia is so thorough at this point um, that you can go, you fall down a Wikipedia hole, and that's it, and you're gone. Um, but it's healthy in a way. It's, it is healthy. Like I mean, like I mean, hey, you know, if you want to be like, I, I'm very interested in like the Holocaust and the um, like rebutting of Holocaust deniers. Um, my God, like that section of Wikipedia is thick. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, whatever it is, like, um, and like I said, I'm trying to watch movies, uh, instead of, I, I got Filmstruck. Filmstruck's really good. Mm. Do you know that one? I did. I had, I think I did the trial run of it. And then when it ran out, I'm kind of at a point right now financially where I can't do too many subscriptions, but it does Under- seem awesome. I, you know, I, I told Megan last night, like, um, she watches Netflix. I would trade if we had to make the call between Netflix and Filmstruck, I would go with Filmstruck. Um, yeah. Again, there's like this idea that we need to have the, the new things. You know, we don't need any new things. No, no, this, that, this is so huge. This is so, I, made a, I made a promise to myself that I broke about a week ago. But I was being good all year. I was thinking to myself, no new fucking books. No purchasing new books. So you have so yeah. many books. Pick one. You know, it's like, oh, you, you're not like super hyped on reading it well i'm sorry that it's not the hot new thing just read read the fucking books that you already have (laughs) yeah no exactly um i you know and sometimes you watch old movies and you go "Eh." um like not everything holds up yeah um i i've been watching igmar bergman films Mm -hmm. um in the plus column you know they have this reputation as being like these old like really slow they're all an hour and a half long, mm-hmm. which I'm so in favor of hour and a half long movies. Totally. Um, 
But I think a lot of art from that period doesn't hold up for me. I, I get I get that it's really good. I'm not saying it's bad. But that kind of like mid 20th century musing on God and, and the non-existence of God or does God exist? If God exists, why would he allow this to happen? Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. And not to be like a hipster atheist guy, but I, I don't find that question interesting at all. Sure, that's fair. It's just like, no, God's not real. Okay, next question. Yeah. And so if, if that's what it's about, I can't, it, it just holds, you know what else is like that from the other end of the spectrum? Is a robot alive? Oh, dude, I hate those narratives. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit either. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. That's not an interesting question. I'm never going to be a fucking robot. Who cares? No. no. If your point is, are we really alive? Then yes, we are. And uh, Next question. Next question. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot hold my interest. Like, um, right. Blade Runner works as an atmosphere piece. But sure. like, um, but other than that, like, yeah, if that's your thing. Oh, is he in love with the computer? Sure. Who cares? Who cares? Big deal. Guys fuck pillows. I don't care. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Dudes will fuck literally anything. Like, literally anything. Literally anything. People are getting all disgusted about crows who fuck their kills. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's like, no, dudes would do that. If there were no rules, if there were no laws, guys (laughs) would just be out here fucking killing people and just fucking whatever they killed. And it wouldn't even have to be people. Like, they could just, like, fuck a dead deer. Sure. Like, that, I mean, that is maybe one good thing about civilization is that we stopped just fucking every, everything. Everything. Now we well, just want to like, fuck everything. And we can't do it. The the ethics of a sex robot? I'm like, there are no ethics to a sex robot. Yeah, who cares? Fuck it. It's a fucking wraparound Sally. That's all it is. Yep. I don't care. I don't care. Yeah. I like, <laughs> no. Do whatever you want to it. I don't care. It's a fucking, it's, it's, it's not a thing. Yeah, it's like it, it's like what if if we make it so that it's like really really it looks exactly like a human being and it acts like well it, but it's not it's, it's not it's not pretty simple pretty simple answer was it was it birthed from a vagina and did it grow organically as a human being if not then it's not so yeah and I don't really think that you can like insole uh you know a robot I don't really think you can do that no. but. Uh, but anyway, no, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. That's actually a really refreshing take on almost the entirety of the sci-fi genre. Like, <laughs> who gives a shit, you know? Don't care. Don't care. <laughs> it's just like when people talk about, oh, that somebody wants to encode their consciousness into a computer. It's like, oh, that won't be them. Yeah. They, the, the, and the thing is, is that my whole thing about that is like, if, like, let's say hypothetically that was real and you did it, and great, now you're stuck in a fucking iPhone for the rest of your life. It's great. <laughs> That'd be a whole That's, new genre, a whole new Twitter genre. The the consciousness that's stuck in a machine. Like, oh, I want to die. But really, I want to die. I've been alive for 800 years. Please, somebody kill me. But you're right. Yeah, it's the Star Trek problem. Like, when they get transported and all of their cells get broken down and then reconstructed uh, on a planet, is that still them? And I think the answer is pretty clearly no. You know, because they've essentially just yeah. been murdered and then re- reconstructed. You know? Right. So it's like they're... Captain Kirk has died, you know, 800 times. And, of course, since he's reconstructed, he can't go back and, like, he can't warn himself that he's going to do it again. There's no way to prove it. But you have died. A long time ago, you died. Yes, you died, and now your eighth clone is proceeding, not realizing that whatever happened to you, you ceased. 
And yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been a really great conversation. I'm glad we ended it on like completely destroying the sci-fi genre with just a bunch of like, (laughs) who gives a shit? Stop, stop, stop it with the, you know. But anyway, thanks for your time, dude. I appreciate it. Of course, dude. Um, glad to be the reigning champion, as always. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. If anybody gets close, I'll let you know because I know you get protective of you know, of our friendship in particular. You know. Yeah. You just you don't like people getting too close to me. I but, don't. But <laughs> also, I just need. Come on, man. My show didn't get on the air. I gotta have something. Yeah. Please, somebody look at me. But all right. Thanks a lot, man. Right. You bet. I'll talk to you later.